this morning to Genesis 25. We'll start in verse 19. And please stand for the reading of, the, of God's word this morning. Starting in verse 19. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the, Arame- the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the other shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Adam. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I am about to die, so of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me, so he swore to him, and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and rose and went out, or went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You may be seated. Thank you, Daniel. Daniel, we are so thankful for you and what you do for our children. We're so pleased and uh, super excited. If you're even interested in what the kids' ministry does, I would come just to see what, uh, uh, what they're trying to equip our parents and the children with on a regular basis. Um, if you were here with me, well, I guess many of you don't work with me during the week, but if you were to we- see me last week, I was super, super thrilled about the passage in front of me. Because when Abraham's servant goes off to find Isaac, it is such a beautiful story of God's people walking faithfully in prayer and trusting in the Lord. And then when we get to chapter 25, you read this account of Isaac and Rebekah's relationship And what we begin to witness is so unlike what we saw in chapter 24. We observe a severely dysfunctional family. I counted at least three significant issues that are placed before the reader. One, there's a parental issue. Uh, It's messed up. You have parents who have not celebrated over the fact that God has not given them but one child, but two after being barren for 20 years. That as they grew, Genesis 25, 
verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for gain. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And so you have this parental issue that, that was clearly setting the tone for this family, which is dysfun- dysfunctional, where the parents begin to pick their favorites. The truth of the matter is, is that Isaac, we're not sure why Rebekah picks Jacob, but Isaac has picked Esau, not because he's a son, but because he can cook meat. So it's a love which is based upon what the service of the son can provide for him that he loves in response. It doesn't seem right that what we've read in chapter 24, the tone has quickly shifted. Not only do we have this parental issue, we have this, this sibling rivalry which takes place at the very beginning of Rebecca's labor or being in once she's been conceived. Uh, she, she has uh, been barren for 20 years and she has stolen the right to enjoy her pregnancy because the two children within can't get along. You'll notice with me, if you were to read in verse 22, the narrator says that the children struggled together within her. The word here is translated lightly. In other passages, the term struggle is rather vivid. It carries the idea of skulls being smashed against each other. It's not a uh, a, a push and shove type of rivalry. This is this is severe conflict, disdain between brothers, which begins within the womb, and which will be carried out through the very life of Jacob and Esau, and they clearly never get along. In fact, when they're bored. Like it happens within and poor Rebecca, she's not like 20 years you've been waiting and waiting and you're waiting and all of a sudden whatever's happening within, she's like, God, this is not right. <laughs> this is not how it's supposed to go. Why am, the, am I this way? And Laura reveals to her what's within. And when she does go into labor, the conflict that which was in is carried out in verse 26, afterwards, when the children were born, his brother came forth with his hand, this is Jacob, holding on to Esau's, Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Esau was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. It's interesting, as I am called Jacob, I often wonder as we go through the rest of Genesis, why in the world in the 90s were parents calling their children Jacob? Um, from the very get-go, Jacob and Esau can't get along. They struggle within, and there will be marked with this attitude of deception, manipulation, and carelessness. We are, it's like this is one chapter, like, can we have two chapters in a row of good tidings? And then in a moment, like we look and we peer into all this dysfunction, 
And not only do we have this parental issue, parents picking their favorites, not only do we have siblings fighting, well, you have children fight in your own household, maybe, but I think it's typical, but this is a whole different level of rivalry. Top of that, Jacob wants what Esau has, and Esau could care less about what he has, referencing the firstborn rights. This is the third issue. Esau, being the firstborn, treats his birthright carelessly. Jacob, on the other hand, he's cold, he's conniving, he's fixated on what his brother has and what he does not have. The the narrator places before us this, this interesting scenario where Jacob will do anything to get that which isn't his. Genesis chapter 25, verse 31 and 33, the scenario unfolds. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Reading the scripture this morning, you you remember that Esau was hungry from going out and on coming back. Jacob sees the opportunity. Esau is like, give me food or I will die. But Jacob says, first, I got, you got something I want. First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So what use of them, use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. Jacob could care less about the life of his brother. He only wants that which his brother has. Give me that which is yours, Esau, who treats the birthright carelessly. He swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. This section like 17 verses, like describes such a severely dysfunctional family. Like some of you might have a hard time going home for Christmas. This is a whole different ballgame. You have siblings at odds with one another. You have one, they don't like each other. The parents are picking their favorites and it has gone into the very fabric of dysfunctionality in the way they live life. Twins, this is new in the story. Babies smashing themselves against one another in the womb. Barren woman refused to enjoy the right to her pregnancy. Rivalry which will begin in her and carry on. As I've said already, the parents choosing their favorites. Twins will be marked for their careless, cold, conniving issues. The question that I have is what in the world does the writer want us to look at? Like, you know, when you watch a movie, the camera is really helpful because where the camera is fixated, that's where you can only look. The narrator's like, and after 17 verses, you're like, well, should we preach on parenting? Parenting. Welcome tonight. No, but we could teach on it's a bad idea to pick up your children your favorites. Or is it the rivalry? Kids don't smash their heads against one another. What is it that the author, the narrator, is placing before us? Because, yes, this is clearly a dysfunctional family. 
What is striking in the midst of this whole story, the, the narrator is going to do something that, and I need you to understand this, very rare. Clearly and normally, when it comes to narrator, narrative literature within the Old Testament, the narrator very rarely expresses his opinion or stresses what he thinks is severe. Here he does it. And it's almost as in all this dysfunctionality, he takes his finger and he says, this is what is the most severe issue in this family. It's not in Isaac, which he will point his finger. It's not at Rebekah. It's not even at Jacob. He's going to get a lot of time to Jacob. It's at Esau. And his careless attitude that he had towards his birthright. You'll notice it in verse 34. And it's his subtle tipping of his hand. Consider this. Genesis 25, verse 34. After he had promised that he would give Jacob the birthright, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate, he drank, he rose, and he went on his way. Thus, the narrative, the narrator putting his finger on something that he wants you and I to consider, Esau despised his birthright. I find it interesting, I find it strange. Because he could have placed his finger anywhere else, and rightly so. Where some of these things will be addressed later on in the Pentateuch in the law of how one is supposed to treat their children, their wives. But here, for the sake of why he has written these things, the attitude of Esau is more severe than the actions which have previously been described. In fact, the New Testament's reference of Esau is similar to what I think the narrator is trying to place before us about Esau's attitude. Hebrews 12, verses 15 through 16, portrays Esau in this way, in the same way. See that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up, causing trouble, and by it many being defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. What I find strange is that in Hebrews, the depiction of depiction of Esau is this, and Isaac and Jacob in Hebrews chapter eleven are described as men of faith. What in the world? What was so severe about Esau despising his birthright? And so severe that the author of Hebrews warns those within the church to follow that same pattern. That's the challenge. Why is it the... The author wants us to consider, in spite of these other individuals, Esau's attitude. To get to that answer, I think we have to ask, well, what in the world is a birthright that made it so severe 
that it was counted as godless. Up to this point, I'm the firstborn of my family, so it's helpful for me to know what, well, I'm not of a Jewish descent, but typically in the Jewish, in, the, in this time of history as well, those who were of the firstborn had the right, the means to inherit twice the amount. So if there were two individuals or children within a family, the father would delegate his resources in three parts. If there were three sons, he would do it in four parts. And the oldest son would get two of the four or two of the three. He would inherit a double portion. This, for Jacob, is significant. Because if there is a rivalry that has begun within the womb, everything that was Abraham's has now been given to Isaac. And if you're going to fight for the battle of the wills to have more superiority or the greater advantage, that inheritance is significant. For if you have double portion, you have advantage. It's part of it. But Esau could care less. The one who had the first right also had the rights and the privileges of the family, carried along with its social, social advantages. I heard it quite a bit. You're the oldest. You know better. Right? As being the oldest, somehow you've got a head start instead of all the other siblings, and so you should know better. Esau, or anyone who's of the firstborn, they had the social advantage and were supposed to set the tone for the rest of the siblings, so to speak. So not only did you get resources, not only did it give rights and privileges to the family, but there's also this social, call it advantage, but an honorable expectation for the one who is of the firstborn. On top of all of that, from God, the Lord's perspective, the, the one who was the first was set aside as the one who would typically be set aside for God in his public service and help lead the way for the siblings and the family to be right with God and pursue his standards. So naturally, to be firstborn had its advantages, financially, socially, religiously. But what made Esau so much more significant is it wasn't just a general birthright, because in this case, the birthright, the blessing, which was given to Abraham and extended now to Isaac, what is to come for the, one of the two siblings, which was meant for Esau, was the very blessing of God. Mind you, this is what we have been studying through the book of Genesis. God gave to Abraham the blessing. Go forth, go to this land. I will make you a nation. I will protect you. I will bless you. It had God in the blessing, in the birthright. And what made Esau's dismissal of his birthright so significant, I think is, is that is the point. He could care less about the God who was going to work within that birthright. If you read the best of Genesis you will notice how little Esau has to do with the story. He actually purposely tries to undermine 
the blessing, the advantage, the privileges, the right to represent God for the family, and tries to purposely go contrary to it. In fact, when Abraham wanted to find a bride for Isaac, he, he asked his servant, Isaac, or asked the servant, do not let Isaac marry a Canaanite. Let go back to my land, my clan, and find a wife for him. And he did. He find Rebekah. Esau will intermix his life within the Canaanites, the Hittites. And you will find in Genesis 26, Esau wants to sever every relationship that he has with his family. Genesis 26, 34 through 35. Stick with me. So I think there is something very, very convictional here. Some of you have had good families. And they have tried to install you with the word of God, the, the value of God, following God and entrusting Him. But when you become an adult, even in being part of a good family, you have the decision to receive that teaching and walk in it or despise it. Some of you have been raised in severely dysfunctionally dysfunctioning families. Yet when you become of age, you still have the decision to make, will I follow God? Esau, being raised up clearly in this dysfunctional rivalry and parenting, when he comes of age, he wants to sever himself from it and from the blessing in which God is working through dysfunctional people. But when he comes of age, Genesis 26, 34, thank you for hearing that. When I, Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith the daughter of Bere, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And these actions brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. When he sold his birthright, what was he doing? He was despising the privilege that was within it, which was God. The opportunity that was there for him to be a blessing to the whole world in light of what was God was doing through this family, Esau steps back and says, I don't want a part of it. And purposely begins to enter, <laughs> enter his own life back into the world far away as from God as possible, disqualifying him to be the one who received the blessing. It's almost as if that when you read the book of Genesis, it's like Esau is trying maybe to disrupt the plan of God. Firstborn, don't get the firstborn blessing, then your work, God, is over, maybe. But even in the birth, while in the womb, God told Rebekah what was going to take place. God's still going to accomplish his promises in spite of those who don't want to be a part of it. Esau doesn't want a part of it. Jacob's the one. And over the next, like, 25 chapters, we're going to see how God works with a highly dysfunctional man. But this is about Esau. Today, think about it. 
He despised the opportunity which was before him, which was so egregious, not just to reject his family, but he was rejecting what God was doing for the whole world. And some of you might think, well, clearly, because his family was so messed up to represent God rightly, of course he doesn't want a part of it. You're right. Sometimes, a lot of parents role in a children's life, a perspective that they give them towards God can be made flawed. But the reality is, is not a perfect family gives a representation of God rightly to the children so that they might walk in obedience either. Like Adam and Eve had the perfect world and that family messed it up. So you may have the perfect environment or the dysfunctional environment, but the reality is both of them have to make a right decision about what they're going to do with God. He's not disqualified with God on the basis of how your family lived. And that's what the writer, I think, is putting for you, before you. Like, parents got issues with each other. The siblings have issues with each other. Esau's issue, God. Blessing through his promises. And Esau says, I don't want part of it. I'm out. The author of Hebrews says, that's godless. It's kind of actually kind of relieving a little bit because like, Sometimes you're looking for a church to be a part of or just a family to be a part of and you're always, if you spend enough time in a group of people, you find out there's some messed up people. Not here. But what makes church work is not our righteousness towards one another, but our perception of who God is and what he does through dysfunctional people. A church would not work. The nation of Israel, as we will see later, will not work if they're not trying to work on this relationship with God. And Esau's unwilling to receive the blessing which was granted to him, his right from God. And that is why the author which is very rare, very rare, intervenes into the story, I would underline it, because it is rare, to give his opinion of what is the most severe issue in this, part, this, this story. Esau despised his birthright. I underlined it. Because it doesn't matter what family you came from, everyone has to figure out what their relationship with with God. Esau despised the advantage and rejected it. I think that's the point. As you read the story of of the scriptures, this same theme continues. Israel having the greatest advantage or privilege set in front of them. I mean, God himself in Exodus... 422, he calls Israel his son. Esau was the firstborn of the family to receive the birthright of the family. When Moses was sent to Pharaoh, he was told to say to Pharaoh, thus you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. 
They're the ones in whom I'm going to funnel my blessing to the whole world. Question is, as we read the book of the Old Old Testament, is Israel going to take the advantage or despise it? The opportunity that was in front of them, Isaiah 43, 21. Why was Israel called the firstborn? Because they are the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. So Israel was, and still to this day, every time you meet a Jew, you're seeing God fulfill his promises. For Sarah was barren for 24 years and opened the womb so their life could come forth, the nation of Israel. Rebekah, barren for 20 years. God opens the prayer as a result of Isaac's prayer, opens the womb of Rebekah. Rachel will be barren. And this theme, how did the nation of Israel come into existence? God. Why? They're my firstborn. And through them, I will funnel my blessings and promises to the whole world. And as you read the Old Testament, the question is, as you read it, will they despise the opportunity and privilege like Esau or trust themselves to it? In fact, when they're at Mount Sinai, it's the Lord who who tried desperately hard to show the advantage they had. Deuteronomy 4, 35, to you, it was shown that you might know the Lord. He is God. There is no other beside him. Israel was on this total other playing field as a result of having an advantage to know who God is. Pretty helpful when you're walking through the Red Sea, having a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other side. <laughs> I wonder how this happened. God is funneling his promises through you and you can tangibly tangibly see the benefits of this relationship. Pretty cool. And as out of the heavens, he let you hear his voice to discipline you. And on the earth, he lets you see his great fire and you heard his words from the midst of the fire. We went through Romans and Paul Paul, he acknowledges the advantage that Israel had. They had every advantage, great in every respects. Romans 3.2. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Not only did they get to see God. I mean, Esau wasn't unfamiliar with the promises granted to this family. Isaac would have said, your grandpa had nothing. He came from a family who had nothing. And he became so resourceful. And I've inherited it. You can see it. And every opportunity he had to receive it. He disdained it. And Israel will do the same. Time and time again. You remember the most familiar one, right? get to Mount Sinai. They see the advantage of having this relationship with God. Moses goes up onto the mountain and they despise the one who is blessing them by building a false god and say, behold, this is the God who has led you out of Egypt. 
disdaining the activity which God was to funnel through these people to the whole world. The writer is giving a hint of what is to come. And Esau, not only in Israel, but the same theme carries on even in the life of Christ. This is what... I don't want to get ahead of myself in our conviction response. But there were 12 disciples. What an incredible advantage that would have been. Really. To follow Jesus Christ for three years. It would have been cool to be in the boat. And the waves were crashing. And Peter and the men are like, Save us, Lord. For you do nothing, we die. And Jesus speaks and rebukes the winds and the waves, and they go, whoosh. To have that guy on your side, that's the advantage. For three years, these men got to walk with him. One of them, after those three years, is going to despise him. On the night before his crucifixion, Judas will hand Jesus over for coins. Esau exchanged the blessing for lentil soup. I think he had no idea what he was exchanging. Judas having a love for the material things of this world just as Esau was just about getting today's food. Exchange the glories of what to come. I don't know. I've had lentil stew. It's not that great. (laughs) Isn't that interesting though? We laugh. That's the irony. That there are people out in this world exchanging the power of the gospel for pennies. And that we as parents may even be even teaching our kids this as well. This career is what you need. And pointing them to lentil soup. Rather than for the, the blessings to come in Christ. This is why the author of Hebrews says, don't let there be an Esau among you. Let me read it again, our convictional response. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. You can be in the family. You see it. You can know of the promises and come short of it. That no root of bitterness or spring up cause trouble and be it by many defiled. The book of Hebrews is so fitting to use Esau's example because the issue that Hebrews was writing to was Jews who had inherited the blessing of Christ Jesus, the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and were tempted to let it go and go back to Judaism. The author of Hebrews says, don't do it. You'll be exchanging the glories of Christ for, so to speak, lentil soup. 
pennies. Let there not be no immoral or godless person like Esau sold his own birthright for a single meal. Something here which is which the author of Hebrews has done, which, which should cause fear for all of us. For you know that even afterwards, when he, it was done, when Esau rejected it, and he realized what he had forsaken. Remember the story as we'll go on, Jacob's going to deceive his own father to receive the blessing. Isaac does give Jacob the blessing And when Esau realizes, it's over. Blessing's been given to Jacob. I cannot have it now. When he realizes what he's just exchanged, he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. There will be a moment for you and I when it comes to receiving the grace of God when it's too late. So I would ask you not to harden your hearts to the advantage that is set before you. That's what the author, I think, would want. That's why he says, of all the issues here, you can fix parental issues. You can fix sibling rivalry. But you cannot fix a man or a woman who rejects God. For it is God who fixes the family. It is God who fixes the sibling rivalry. It's God who gives out blessings. So to despise his birthright, to give up on God, that is to be found falling short of the opportunity in front of you. So here's the thing. I'm going to do one other parable or story, maybe just to land this home. Whether you receive him or not, his promises will be accomplished. Esau had the right. He rejected, despised it. And he said, God, I'll just go with Jacob then. And this same attitude gets carried on in the New Testament. That's why the table becomes so significant for us. For the nation of Israel, when they saw Christ the Messiah lived out in front of them, Jesus gave this parable. If you're going to despise and reject the Messiah, God will continue with his promises. And he'll go to another group of people. And so he taught this parable to the nation of Israel. The kingdom of heaven, Matthew 22, verse 2, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. Those who were supposed to come were unwilling to come. The relationship that existed, the advantage of knowing the king, they rejected. And again, he sent out the other slaves saying, maybe the first one didn't get it right, I have a wedding, Come. Tell those who have been, been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. They paid no attention and went their way, 
one to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves, the king's slaves, who pronounced the good news, the blessing, and mistreated them and killed them, despised the invitation. The king was enraged, but he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. What is the king to do now? We have a wedding to have. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy by their own free will despised my invitation. Go therefore to the main highways, as many as you can find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, dysfunctional, immoral people invited to a wedding feast. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. I provided the opportunity providing the clothing, the advantages for you. And yet we have this, again, unwilling person to despise by practice this invitation. And the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot, throw him in the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Esau, Israel, the church, the letter of Hebrews, in this parable, there is this theme of the opportunity which God places before people and people, whether they're in good families or dysfunctional families, have a choice. Receive God and his blessings or to despise it. And if you decide, we decide to despise it, God's still moving forward. And this is what marks the gospel of such good news is that the gospel has come as we went through the book of Romans to Gentiles, which are ourselves. And when we stand before the communion table as we gathered collectively, we remember that we were not the people of the advantage. We were not of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But by the grace of God who furthers his promises, he extended that grace to us. And now, as we rejoiced in worship, we have come as children of God, adopted into this blessing which has been extended to the whole world. I don't know where you're at, but the table is for those who have received the blessing of Jesus Christ, and that they have responded that Jesus Christ has died for my sins, and that I believed His atonement has paid my debt in full, and as a result of a profession of faith, through baptism, you have declared before all, this is your king. I would invite you to take up the table in remembrance of that advantage you have. For those of you who have not come that far, I would ask you to consider the opportunity in front of you. The gospel is that Christ died for your sins, extended you a profound privilege. And if you were to reject it, 
you're receiving in its place lentil soup. That's nothing to compare to the glories of Christ. And I ask you to receive Him as your Savior and King. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You how You teach us through Your Word. In many ways, I can acknowledge that I am not a perfect parent or brother. But by your grace, you have saved me. And my only hope in this life is Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would guard the people of reliance to be tempted from the things of the world, to think that they are more marvelous than you. And if there's a soul in here who thinks that there's anything that compares to the glories of Christ, I pray that you would convict them this morning to see the treasure which is rich in Christ, that though we die in Christ, we will enjoy eternity with you on the earth. And Lord, as we remember the table this morning, we long for your return.